0: Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that wants to save the galaxy because we're two of the idiots that live in it. I'm story expert Lottie Diane rich of Chipperish Media.
1: And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1. All right, now before we get started, we want to welcome a special a-hole with us here today, Rob Hyret of the Chipperish Media Star Wars Podcast. Metaphors be with you, since all space movies are basically the same, right? We thought we'd pull him in here to hang oh out my with God. us today. <laughs> <laughs> now I've offended all the boys. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> welcome, Rob. How you doing?
2: Thanks, Lonnie. That's uh, it's good to hear. Uh- <laughs> I definitely reject the premise that space movies are all the same, but Mm -hmm. uh, there is definitely some Star Wars DNA in this movie, which I'll talk about a little later.
0: Oh, awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Great. Okay. Everybody out there, Metaphors Be With You is a Star Wars podcast where Rob talks in depth about themes and metaphor and everything crunchy in the Star Wars universe. It's fantastic. You can go out and find it in any podcast app of your choice. And now I'm going to toss to Joshua because we've been waiting way too long for our four color facts, man. Okay,
1: so I've mentioned in previous episodes that there are a few things in the MCU that give me little nightmares when I think about preparing their four-color facts, (laughs) and today we are dealing with one of those properties.
0: All right.
1: There is so much going on in this movie, and a lot of the comic book story behind it is shockingly recent, like the last 15 years or less. Mm -hmm. Now, not the characters themselves. Most of them are quite a bit older, but the things that brought us this version of Guardians, that is all really new stuff. Wow. So rather than try and talk about all of everything that ever had the Guardians of the Galaxy name on the cover, (laughs) I'm going to do a brief history of how we got these Guardians. Yeah. And then just talk about the differences between the team members and what we get on screen. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so let's still be honest, it's going to be long as fuck, get comfy. All right, (laughs) this version of the Guardians, like I said, very new. The original team of Guardians, and what I would have considered for most of my life to be the much more recognizable version of the Guardians, Mm -hmm. first appeared in January of 1969 in a book called Marvel Superheroes, Mm -hmm. pretty much on the label. It's a combination of reprint material and then a tryout book for new concepts like the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. The original team is a group of last of their kind survivors, which is one of the few ideas that gets carried over into this new version. Mm -hmm. They include an astronaut from 20th century Earth who took a thousand year long trip to Alpha Centauri because he went at slower than light speeds. They wind up in a guerrilla war on a humanless Earth against the Badoon, a conquering race of strictly gender-segregated reptilian aliens. (laughs) They also time travel a lot, which is how they come to be part of the regular Marvel 616 timeline. And Mm -hmm. they bounced around various fill-ins and backup stories until the late 90s when they got their own title for the first time, and it ran for 62 issues.
0: Is 62 a long run for something like that?
1: It's five years of comics.
0: (laughs) 62 is a pretty long run for
1: comic books that started in the 90s.
0: Okay. All right.
1: So before then, you would have extremely long running sets of creators on books. And then for a while, you'd have a lot of turnover sometimes, especially with smaller properties where they were still kind of trying to figure out what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But the 90s were what we in the business call a clusterfuck creatively. (laughs) (laughs) And so things like came and went you know just quick fast in a hurry overnight and to get this kind of like weird third tier space opera team run for 60 issues starting during the creatively bankrupt 90s mm-hmm. I'm listen I'm going to get added I stand <laughs> by that statement but there are absolutely <laughs> exceptions to that but so yes for this time frame and this team 62 issues is a lot okay and it really is the squad that most comic book fans would have thought of as the Guardians of the Galaxy if they thought of them at all.
2: <laughs> and Joshua, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Guardians, the original Guardians operated mostly a thousand years in the future, right? Y-
1: yes, off and on. They started time traveling fairly early, I think mostly so that they could have guest appearances that would boost the readership. Uh Um, But they almost always went back to the thousand years in the future because that's where, you know, their story was. That's where their guerrilla warfare against the Badoon was really happening.
2: Same with the Legion on the DC side.
1: Yes, it's actually really an interesting dichotomy between the two um, because that sounds like there's like a big overlap in concept to them, but really... That's the only thing they have in common. We're a thousand years in the future of our respective comic book universes. (laughs) Right. Uh, We're a bunch of last survivors fighting a guerrilla war. Uh, We're a club of teenagers with superpowers. (laughs) Uh, By the way, if you've been listening to anything I do at all over any amount of time, you'll know instantly which one of those I find more interesting. (laughs) Well, for me, it's the club of teenagers. And it's superpowered teenage nonsense. That's what it is. Now... A series of mini-serieses <laughs> brought us several interlocking cosmic threats. The second and third of these were overseen by a couple of guys whose work I really appreciate. And they are, interestingly enough, guys who have worked on the well. Legion of Superheroes. Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Now, under their watchful eyes, we reached this third cosmic level event, and a new Guardians of the Galaxy stood ready to battle it. Inspired by, but not at all connected to the previous incarnations, these Guardians were, for the most part, the weirdos you get in this movie.
0: <laughs> now, was the tone similar to this movie? Like, Because this movie is really, you know, I mean, a little bit on the silly side. You know, it's really funny. It, tonally, was Guardians written in that Can I way? answer
2: this one? Okay. I was very familiar with the Abnett and Lanning uh, Guardians of the Galaxy comics run. And then I went and saw this movie, and my biggest disappointment immediately was that it was not weird enough.
1: It is A, not weird enough, and I would say also the silliness, the fun in this movie is – I don't want to say it's absent from the Abnett and Landing stuff, but the existence of that version of the Guardians is very much rooted in two or three back-to-back interstellar wars. So it's a little serious. Yeah, it's sort of a guerrilla warfare kind of uh, thing going on.
0: I was going to say, because just based on it, it sounded a little more serious yeah. to me than necessarily what we're dealing with in this movie. And the
2: music, of course, is a thing that will be unique to the movie because of comics medium, but is a huge part yes. of the identity of this movie.
1: Yeah. Okay, you say that, but I will actually make a pitch for the latest gym reboot, which somehow manages to integrate songs that don't actually exist into the narrative of a comic book. So check that out if you're wow. intrigued that nice by trip. that. Yeah. But... I have too much about Guardians. I will not get yeah. off on a I'm gem sorry. tangent. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Friends, that's on me. I will at any moment go off on a gem tangent. So so first talking about the differences between Peter Quill of the 616 and the movie. I actually have to talk about his dad first. So Jason of Spartax, which I'm sure is supposed to be pronounced Jason, but there's a friggin' apostrophe and it's so a whatever. It's a fantasy rule, and it's a space opera rule. If you want to make people's names weird, you just put some apostrophes in it, and now it's elf language. (laughs) Word. (laughs) So Jason of Spartax crash lands on Earth, and Meredith Quill helps him hide and repair his ship. Obviously, they fall in love, but Jason is the crown prince of an interstellar empire and has to return to fight alongside his people in a war. And so he leaves, unaware that he's left the heir to his throne growing inside Meredith. As a child, Peter repels an attack on his farm from the Badoon, gets orphaned, joins NASA, gets stranded in space, gets found by the Ravagers, led by Yondu, but not the Yondu from A Thousand Years in the Future who was an original Guardian of the Galaxy, but a different version of Yondu that actually shows up in this movie, kinda, joins the Ravagers, and then makes his way across the galaxy. Aha. Uh-huh. It's a little confusing because there have been some serious retcons to this character, but only recently has anyone cared enough about him to try and make them all line up. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> But this is why he's called Star-Lord, because he is a literal Star-Lord and heir to the interstellar kingdom of Spartax, and not because he's a man-child with delusions of grandeur. <laughs> his personality also could not be more different than the movie version. You see, Jason is an overbearing asshole who demands that his only son come to his side. But since Peter is also an overbearing asshole, he refuses, and their two massive egos carom off one another, making both of them bigger douche nozzles in the process. <sighs> Rob, you've read some with this Peter Quill in it. Would you? Would you feel I've characterized him properly? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. <laughs> he's not a great guy, but no. I actually kind of like him better because he's just like everybody do as I damn well say. I'm the boss of the universe. Ask right. my dad. Gamora. Let's talk about Gamora, daughter of Thanos, the Mad Titan, and the most dangerous woman in the galaxy. <laughs> 616 Gamora is the last survivor of her species, but not because Thanos killed them. They were also slaughtered by the Badoon, a recurring theme you'll note. (laughs) Thanos found her and offered to help her become a living weapon who could have her revenge on the Badoon. He trained her in the deadliest forms of martial combat, as well as advanced stealth techniques. She disobeyed Thanos on a very dangerous planet, was separated from him, came into battle with a massive gang of thugs who beat and raped her, because of course they did, and fuck writers who use rape as a tragic backstory, the bunch of hack fucks.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that, yes.
1: (laughs) My, My pleasure. Thanos finds her there on death's door, murders her assailants en masse, and then promises to remake her stronger, which he does, with a variety of cybernetic enhancements that leave her superhumanly strong, durable, and agile. Gamora's trained in every weapon known across the Milky Way, so just let that soak in for a second. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> How long would that take? I, man, I guess with Thanos in charge, it's like the accelerated program. It's like AP Milky Way weapons. <laughs> sure. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an honors glaive gisarm today. Yes. <laughs> and despite all that, she still prefers knives and swords. Especially a blade Mm -hmm. given to her by Thanos called the God Slayer.
0: Okay, I I like this, and I'm going to tell you why. Because all all these weapons, when you have guns or anything that is like this seriously advanced weapon, it speaks to unearned power, which is always bad for stories. So I like the fact that she's like, nope, I will kill you with my bare hands or with a kitchen knife. One or the other, (laughs) but I'm going to do it with skill.
1: Now, we have a space to discuss this later, so I'm going to push back against guns, it automatically equaling unearned power in the MCU. Okay. So we'll come back to that. But yes, okay. I do like the idea that hand to hand weapons become or stay mm-hmm. really important with these people who are just insanely powerful. It's like, what are you yeah. going to do? Shoot them with mm-hmm. what? You know, <laughs> I got a sword. It's called the God Slayer. What's it for? Shut go. up. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I julienne with it. Yeah, Right.
1: Yeah. You know, I just make some sandwiches. So, she left Thanos' service when he decided to bedazzle a glove and murder half the universe. <laughs> because the woman has murdered a lot of people, but apparently even she has limits. Mm-hmm. She's also held the time stone of the Infinity Gems, but that was back in the 90s. And as I mentioned, we try not to talk about them very much. Right. Rocket. Yes. Rocket of the comics is in some ways very similar to Movie Rocket. Except the murky backstory has been filled out, and it is bonkers. (laughs) Rocket worked as the chief law enforcement officer, or the ranger, so he's Mm -hmm. ranger rocket raccoon, yes really, (laughs) of Halfworld, a colony created for the galaxy's mentally ill, populated by genetically engineered and enhanced animal companions who could also double as their caretakers. Whoa. Hmm. he has a ship called the wreck and ruin and a first mate named walrus who is you guessed it a talking walrus <laughs> they have some adventures that are heavily influenced by the Beatles song rocky raccoon and honestly it's really weird and kind of problematic because of all the people with mental illness etc mm-hmm. so here's a bit of trivia instead <laughs> it's based on a Beatles song there just say yeah. that yeah for the future <laughs> Considering Rocket's current level of popularity in everything ranging from these movies down to Halloween costumes and fruit roll-ups, he only appeared in ten comic books in his first thirty years of existence. His big moment comes. Are you guys? What? What's happening? Oh, sorry, I just laughed at that idea. That's that's. I know it's that, incredible. That barely exists. It's yes, it's incredible. I mean, considering now that I'm like watching children run around in Rocket costumes, and I'm like, you know, yeah. like ten minutes ago. Yeah. (laughs) He was the weirdest, embarrassingest part of the 616, you know.
0: Wow. So,
1: I mean, that's not true either because I mentioned the 90s, but still, you get it. Rocket's big moment comes in 2008 when he helped found the all-new, all-different Guardians of the Galaxy, just as Marvel was trying to figure out how to do a cosmic movie that wasn't as boring as Thor in the Dark World. (laughs) So, apparently, Rocket's greatest superpower is timing.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Groot. Groot. Groot's quite a thing. Uh, Originally appearing in Tales to Astonish in 1960, for those playing at home, that's before Marvel is Marvel. Mm -hmm. Groot is a sentient tree monster bent on destroying Earth and all who oppose him. Or it. Or them. He appeared again in An Incredible Hulk in 1976, along with several other pre-Marvel monsters. Remember how I said that was a thing? Mm -hmm. That used to be all the science fiction horror comics, which were basically different flavors of monster coming to Earth and then meeting tragic and ironic ends. (laughs) Way later, Groot appears again as a bit player in, oh my God, Lonnie, buckle up for this, 2006's (laughs) Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos.
0: Oh my God. A
1: book centered on a S.H.I.E.L.D. team of literal monsters like a mummy, a werewolf, a zombie, and a vampire-werewolf hybrid, who, by the way, was called Vampire by Night. It was pretty weird.
0: Okay, I got to get me that. <laughs> I really don't think I it's going to do what you want that.
1: it to do, but I do recommend you read it. We should talk about it. Oh, we
0: should totally do that. Now, all the comics you've talked about, I've been like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, this what I'm like. Nick Fury, The Howling Commandos, A Bunch of Monsters, and Groot, I'm in.
1: Yes. Sold. Yeah. Now, he's like a secondary player in there. The main mm-hmm. crew is, as I mentioned, a mummy, a werewolf, a zombie, and a vampire-werewolf sure. hybrid. Whew. But yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. All right. Mm-hmm. The thing that gets closest to movie Groot also didn't show up until 2008 and ties into those cosmic level threats. This Groot Mm -hmm. also is the last of its species picking up on a Guardians theme and had been arrested by the Kree for some reason. So it was in the kiln when the Annihilation Wave destroyed it, thus kicking off the events that led to our all new, all different Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm hmm. There's a bunch of words in there that don't mean anything to you at me on Twitter. We'll talk about it. It's <laughs> but I'm not getting into it here, man. <laughs> Honestly, there's some weirdness with retcons to retcons that are kind of interesting. But the fact is that much like Rocket and Star-Lord, nobody cared enough to make it all work together. And now everyone mm-hmm. just assumes he's movie Groot. And hey, comics, everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did he ever speak or was he always just I am Groot? Or is that a movie thing? Uh,
1: That would be part of the complicated retcons to retcons.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um,
1: But he did say I am Groot only in the comic series that this this is based on. Yes. And also he only said Groot, I think, in the original appearance. But there were some times in between when he was able to speak. And they Mm -hmm. talked about that, like, the actual organs for speaking would atrophy and harden over time for his species. (laughs) Because Uh they're trees,
3: right? Right.
1: And so Mm -hmm. then they would be limited to... Apparently all I am Groot. I don't know, you guys. Comic books.
2: (laughs) Just like real saplings can talk when they're little, and then when they turn into big trees, they can't talk anymore.
1: Yes, you have largely nailed it. And (laughs) I don't know why. Again, nobody cared enough about these characters (laughs) to make it make sense. Like, nobody is bending over backwards trying to figure out why these things are the way that they are, like we're, you know, like we're doing Mm -hmm. with... Filling in every last piece of Batman or Captain America's past, you know, (laughs) except for Drax the Destroyer, who shockingly is a thousand percent more interesting in the comics.
0: Well, I mean, no, the bar is low. It is a low bar.
1: Yeah. So, comic book Drax is nothing like movie Drax. For one Mm -hmm. thing, his name is Arthur, and he's from Earth. Wow. Thanos murdered Arthur's family, except for a daughter, but I bet we'll talk about Moon Dragon if Guardians 3 ever gets off the ground, so we're Mm -hmm. not doing it now, (laughs) and he only did it to cover his tracks on Earth. Thanos' father, Mentor, needed a weapon to use against his son and nabbed Arthur's spirit, which Mentor then placed inside an artificial body of vast physical strength, stamina, and resilience. Drax could also fire concussive blasts of cosmic energy, because why the hell not? (laughs) This version was also huge, like Hulk big or bigger, and a much lighter shade of green than what we get in the movie. Mm -hmm. He could fly, didn't need to eat or breathe, and could psionically track Thanos because the main thing Drax wanted to destroy was Thanos. Mm -hmm. Also, he enjoyed purple capes.
0: So we got that mixture of purple and green again. Exactly. Ah. Mostly because,
1: in this case, mostly because they look good together, not because he's particularly villainous.
0: Right. He's more Mm -hmm.
1: complicated, you know.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Some stuff happened with Drax's daughter, and his mental Mm -hmm. capacities were drastically diminished, but his power level went way up, and then it reverted back, and then it reverted the reversion, and reverted the reverted (laughs) reversion, and soap opera shit. During one of the times he was stronger but dumber, he also held Mm -hmm. the Power Stone of the Infinity Gems. Ooh, most recently, around 2005, big, dumb, strong Drax died in Alaska when an extraterrestrial prison ship crashed there and he got confused, thinking an Earth girl was his daughter and then died protecting her. A new, slimmer, less strong, but smarter, and with rad, swirly red tattoos, Drax came out of the dead, bigger body and now he likes knives. <laughs> That's all I got, guys. For real, it's that's.
2: <laughs> if you're gonna change a character that radically, why keep the name? Why not just start with a fresh? Never mind.
0: Because he came from the old Drax, so right. Well, yeah, right. But
1: the, this creator clearly wanted to do, just do something radically
0: new. Completely. Why different, not
1: just make yeah. a new? Eh, it doesn't. Yeah, matter. no. Superhero comics don't do that. We never throw anything away.
0: Right. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> yeah, I that I works
1: great, and sometimes it's a little sketch.
0: Right, because they yeah. came up during the depression so they keep everything
1: oh my god <laughs> yes that's my new explanation
3: <laughs>
1: once again we discover a way that the depression imprinted on the dna of superhero comics and i am yes. super here for it there there I'm down. that's fantastic yeah
0: <laughs> waste nothing
1: Now, Drax had this Earth girl with him as a sidekick for a while, even when he got rearrested and went to the kiln. And eventually she fades away because that was honestly a super weird choice all the way around. I don't know what they were thinking. (laughs) I mean, I'm pro-kid sidekicks, but this was just weird and off-putting as a relationship. Yeah. I kind of think you're Moondragon, who I also murdered that one time. Like, it's not... (laughs) Right. All right. Ronan the Accuser.
0: Oh, dear God, please tell me that he is better in the comics than he is in the movie, because oh, my God.
1: He is so good in the comics for real.
0: Awesome. Good. I, oh,
1: my gosh. Okay, so that actually brings something up. I'm going to wait for Captain Marvel to really talk about the Kree, because they're not really characters in Guardians, mm-hmm. and they probably should have been, because like somebody should have been an actual character in Guardians, so <laughs> right. why not the Kree? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, you will learn a little bit about him as I talk about Ronan's deal because he is super cool. But I'm not going to explain any of the weird stuff that comes up except in how they impact Ronan. Don't at me because it is taking every single ounce of like self-control to not talk about an alien race whose entire philosophy was summed up as Zen fascism.
3: Oh, Jesus.
1: <laughs> now, as a whole, the Kree are speciest assholes. Mm -hmm. They pretty much look down on everyone who isn't Cree. Even worse, they're racist assholes, too, because there's a minority group of purebred, blue-skinned Cree who hate and look down on the majority pinks or whites. Mm -hmm. So if you're wondering why movie Ronin is disgusted with his homeworld's peace treaty with Xandar and the tacit acceptance of their pluralistic culture, just know that comic book Ronin would likely agree with him. Okay. Whew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ronan is the supremor of the Accuser Corps, who are sort of like <laughs> itinerant jurists of the Kree's militaristic law. Being the boss of the Corps, as well as spectacularly successful at his job, leads to Ronan often just being known as Ronan the Accuser. He first mm-hmm. appeared in Fantastic Four No. 65, cover dated August 1967. A robotic Kree sentry had been destroyed by the Fantastic Four, and Ronan was sent to check it out. The FF were able to defeat the Accuser, which leads to the Kree sending a spy mission, but we'll almost certainly talk more about that in Captain Marvel, maybe? We'll see. (laughs) Ronan has been the Kree Empire's strong right arm, a warden when Earth became a galactic prison planet, the king of the Kree, framed as a traitor, and the savior of the Empire, along with quite a lot of rest of the galaxy, in the stories that gave us this version of the Guardians. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's why he's in this movie, because he only makes a modicum of plot sense in his own right. Like, there's a lot of source tourism that I will talk about as we discuss the movie. Mm -hmm. Ronan is brilliant, a tactical genius, an expert hand-to-hand combatant. He's enhanced by both cybernetics and his own accuser armor, and he wields the universal weapon. (laughs) The hammer absorbs and redirects cosmic energy, transforms matter, generates force fields, controls gravity, mucks gently with time, (laughs) and allows the wielder to either teleport interstellar distances or fly through hyperspace. Hey, Lonnie, you only get one guess. With a weapon named the Universal Weapon, who do you think is responsible for the creation of Ronan the Accuser? Uh,
0: I I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Am I supposed to know? got
1: to be Kirby and Lee, right? It's Jack, it's Kirby and Stanley, oh, everybody drink. Jack,
0: Kirby all
3: and
1: right. Stanley. Okay,
0: okay, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry I will cut like, all of ones...
1: that. I just really thought that would be a like giant signpost for you at this stage.
0: No, well here's the thing. They're the only ones I know. So sure. like I thought it would be too obvious to say like the only ones that I actually knew. No way. Um, but, a bunch okay. of
1: weird technology lines and a weapon <laughs> called the Universal Weapon. That's Lee and Kirby all day.
0: <laughs> all right, all right, noted.
1: So 616 Ronin is imperious and honorable and hates everyone at least a little, but he has the power, <laughs> both physically and militaristically, to back up all of his pronouncements. He is supremely cool and really deserved better than he got in this movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, good.
1: So the Nova Corps. Uh-huh. I have mentioned the Nova Corps before, mm-hmm. or at least a member of the Nova Corps during the episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that featured Blackout. You may recall I talked about how Blackout is a knockoff Green Lantern who fought (laughs) a much more on the buzzer knockoff of Green Lantern. (laughs) And that on the buzzer knockoff was Richard Ryder, a.k.a. Nova. All right. At the time, Richard barely understood that he was part of a small army of galactic peace officers with access to the Nova Force and the World Mind.
0: Wow. Is that is that like a. I don't know, the force and the world mind, that sounds very Jedi to me, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I
1: mean, I mean it is right. it's very Jedi or like uh, like the Green Lanterns with their power batteries. I mean that's really what Xandar does, one hundred percent. Okay,
0: so is this influenced by Star Wars or was Star Force maybe Star Wars maybe influenced by this?
2: I think the more direct influence is the central power battery the Green Lanterns use. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> by making it alive and
1: having and giving it a will of its own, it, it it's a little bit of force, yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes the most sense. It's this weird combo because the uh, the Green Lantern core stuff is also a mid-60s invention, so predates mm-hmm. Star Wars and also was probably after the point that Lucas would have been influenced by it. Like he was much more, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers.
3: Or, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I think the more direct influence is definitely Green Lantern, especially because, and this will be the last I say about Richard Rider for now, especially because Richard's origin as a nova looks remarkably similar to how Jordan's origin as a green lantern.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. Like the
1: previous wielder of the power crash lands on Earth and says, Power, find me an an heir, oh, find gee, me really? somebody who can take it and Richard does. Uh Now, the reason that I won't say anything else about Richard is that I will bet money there's an earlier draft of this movie where Nova is our viewpoint character from Earth and gets Uh everything explained to him. But once the script replaces him with this version of Star-Lord, so too did the explanations for literally everything vanish. Xandar is a planet out in the vastness of the Milky Way that is interesting only because it created an elite unit of explorers and peacekeepers, the Nova Corps. The living computers of Xandar came together in the world mind and supplied the various ranks of Nova Corpsmen with different levels of information and power, depending on how high they are in the organization. Like I said, they're for all intents and purposes the Green Lanterns of Marvel, and Richard was (laughs) summoned from Earth along with the rest of the Corps to battle the Annihilation Wave, which is the cosmic event that eventually led to this version of the Guardians existing. When the rest of the core was destroyed, Richard's costume housed the entirety of the world mind and the Nova Force until a kid was introduced on Earth whose dad was also a Nova Corman, but in secret. Comics, everybody! <laughs> and now we have The Collector. All right. Buckle in for some shit that sounds like comic book collectors turn pros doing psychoanalysis on themselves. <laughs> it's The Collector! <laughs> So I said I was only going to talk about the ways that the characters are different, but since the collector of the movie is yet another interesting-looking prop rather than a character, <laughs> we don't know anything about him but his name. I've got free yeah. reign. <laughs> Tanalir Tavon is one of the elders of the universe, note the audible capital letters, mm-hmm. who was not so much born as awakened to self-awareness at the dawn of time. When his wow. wife, after millions of years of living together, literally died of boredom. <laughs> He decided to get a hobby. Spoiler, it was collecting things. (laughs) He also had the vague power of prophecy and foresaw the coming of a being who would be dangerous to the entire universe, including the elders thereof. And that guy was Thanos. So the collector began gathering artifacts and life forms that were the last of their kind in order to protect them from the Mad Titan. Along the way, he even got an Infinity Stone, but he didn't realize what it was until Thanos showed up and took it from him like a bully on a big nerd. (laughs) Really? Really? That's how the Infinity Gauntlet starts, you guys.
0: Oh, God. It was
1: the right choice to adapt it the way they did in Infinity War. Okay. (laughs) Much like the other Elders, the Collector is stupendously powerful and able to wield the Power Primordial, which is the last remnants of the cosmic energies, from the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And that's distinct from the power cosmic that Galactus uses? Yes, because Galactus's power comes from the universe previous to ours, (laughs) as he survived the big crunch of his own universe. I'm pretty sure I've got to say that on Listen Up A-Holes before, and I refuse to explain it any further than that. (laughs)
0: i just okay whenever joshua gets started talking about all of this stuff i just picture like a wall with you know like the serial killer wall with all this red string like going from (laughs) universe to universe how you keep track of all this stuff like i honestly have no idea but it's fascinating to watch (laughs) Uh,
1: to be honest Of late, I have lost track of some of it because Marvel Uh has started to embrace its alternate universes more and more. And taking characters from defunct timelines and making them characters in their main universe, you know, it's gotten a little muddier. You know, one of the hallmarks of the 90s was the Age of Apocalypse, this this alternate timeline where everything was even worse for the X-Men. And at least Mm -hmm. three or four characters from that story, which... Has not happened anymore as far as the 616 is concerned. Our main characters in X-Men books right now. (laughs) Miles Morales, the Spider-Man that I care about, started out as a Spider-Man from an alternate universe that was so popular he got folded into the main one when his universe went defunct. Like, this is just what they do now. (laughs) And so I would say that I've got a firm grasp on this until about 1998. And then after uh-huh. that, I am also full of red string and a serial killer. Wall. Yeah, right. So <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about, because, again, it, it ties into that uh, that source tourism is mm-hmm. nowhere in mm-hmm. the comics. Nowhere is the severed head of a celestial that exists at the rip, the end of the universe and all space time. You may remember the Celestials as those wicked cool god scientists who wander around tampering with species and then leaving for a billion years before coming back to seeing how things went. (laughs) You may recall them because my favorite is Erishem the Judge because a thumbs down from him will literally obliterate your planet. Wow. Anyway, they definitely deserve beheading because they're cosmic level jerks. (laughs) And one of them becoming the headquarters, ha ha, for the Guardians of the Galaxy (laughs) is right and proper. Nowhere also has a talking telekinetic dog that was shot into the space by the USSR back in the 60s. And he's their head of security, just in case you were wondering why a dog in a cosmonaut suit was running around this movie. His name is Cosmo. He's the best. He is a delight and also deserved better than this movie gave him. Oh, <laughs> Two honorable mentions that I refuse to discuss because this has gone on way long enough are Nebula and Yondu. Now, they are important and interesting and cool, but since this movie doesn't really think they're interesting and important and cool, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 does, I will wait until then to discuss them.
0: All right. Well, I have to say that was fascinating, Um, and I really appreciate all of the deep, deep research that you do for each of these episodes, but that was absolutely... (laughs) It is
1: 50 years of melange that is both like regular superhero stuff and also a space opera and sometimes both. And I mean, like, like, for instance, Drax first shows up in an issue of Iron Man Uh-huh. and he just shows up and then he leaves by the end of that issue. This is also the first appearance of Thanos. Like both of them just appear in <laughs> the oh middle of Iron Man doing Iron Man shit. <laughs> he was literally trading punches with Namor the Submariner one issue before, and then in this one it's like, oh, look, Drax, the dr- destroyer, who apparently is really angry at this purple dude. How, why am I here? <laughs> like, Iron Man is a tourist in his own book. It's like how Darkseid first appeared in Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. I have a much better explanation for that, it's a little less random. Oh yeah, I, I know the backstory. Yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you. It's like, when you yeah. tell that to somebody <laughs> who doesn't know, they're like, yeah. What? Yeah. It, yeah. So it's it's just fifty years of people throwing stuff at the wall and seeing mm. what stuck, you know. <laughs> um and then they decided to make it into this movie. So hey, Lonnie, tell us a yes. little bit about how this movie was made.
0: All right, so Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 is the 10th movie in the official Marvel Cinematic Universe and is the ninth highest grossing MCU movie of the 20 that have been released to date. And that's a pretty big deal considering that a lot of those movies are like the biggest blockbusters of all time. So that's a pretty, uh, pretty good performance. This movie was released on July 21st, 2014, and was written by Nicole Perlman and James Gunn, and directed by James Gunn. Now, one of the most notable things about Guardians is its retro soundtrack, which was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media, which it lost out to Glen Campbell for I'll Be Me and whatever Grammys. I don't <laughs> even know what that's about. I've, You know, no, no offense to Glen Campbell fans. Lovely man, I'm sure, but oh my God, this was amazing. So anyway, um, Nicole Perlman wrote the original draft uh, of the script, which James Gunn says he completely rewrote, taking credit for all of the stuff that people loved, like the Walkman thing, which apparently wasn't in the original. Um, But he publicly claimed, and I actually saw this tweet, that the dead mother was the antagonist, which means he doesn't know anything about anything, so I credit anything good in this movie to Pearlman, because Jesus, a dead character cannot be a goddamn antagonist, because they are dead, unless it's a ghost actively mucking things up for the protagonist. Shut up and sit down, James Gunn i'm sorry you know i realize he got fired from the series for like other stuff and we're not going to discuss that but that that if i was running marvel that bullshit would get your ass canned yeah. so fast i don't care how much money you make
1: absolutely that I, is not i have an addendum note here in the in the script yes. that's just like this fucking guy because how do you no,
3: <laughs> seriously?
1: i mean well, i, I thought know. isn't that just a clumsy way of saying though
2: that that so th- there's obviously two conflicts going on in this movie. There's the one versus Ronan, and there's the internal conflict of Peter trying to get over his mother. And I mm-hmm. think I think Gunn is clumsily saying that that Peter's you know problem with his dead mother is the antagonist for the internal conflict.
0: Uh, no, because I don't think first of all that that's really sorry, sorry, Rob. No, I that's a in, good theory. No, it is. I mean, it's a solid theory, except that what what actually this is shorthand for saying for Gunn is I don't know dick about storytelling. That's what it is. Okay. (laughs) Um, so like here's the thing, because the thing is, is that if you take out the dead mother, um, it doesn't really change a whole lot of what of what he's there to do because he's there to like save the universe. And we're just arcing him from solitude to community. And you can do that without all this tragic backstory of how he lost his mom. Now I get that we've got to have this ambiguity about who his father is and yada, yada, yada and all of that. But the bottom line is that the mom, actually, if you can take an element out and the whole movie doesn't fall apart, then I'll tell you what, not your antagonist. That's for damn sure. So, um, yeah, sorry. I've been mad about that for a few years. And every time I go back to it, it just drives me crazy because it's like there's so much bad, like uh, so many bad ideas about storytelling, because people don't bother to learn how storytelling works, and mm-hmm. then they go out and they make million dollar movies and they spread bad information. Like if nobody cared about James Gunn, I'd be like, oh poor baby, and pat him on the head and let him go on his way. But he's sending <laughs> bad information out there, and I just I can't have it. But here's the thing I can have for James Gunn, and it is his brother Sean. <laughs> some yes. of you may remember as Kirk from Gilmore Girls. I loved him there, and I love him here. He plays Yondu's sidekick, Kraglin. Uh But here's an interesting bit of trivia. He also did the physical acting for Rocket. So Bradley Cooper just did the voice work for Rocket. And Sean Gunn did all the physical acting that they modeled the um, the CGI on.
1: So I thought that was pretty cool. That is pretty yeah. cool.
0: I like that guy. I think he's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and it's because of Sean that I, you know, allow James Gunn to live. Um, ben Diesel... <laughs> also recorded all of his I am Groot lines in other languages so it could be his actual voice on all the dubbed tracks and seriously dude did it in Russian and Mandarin just said I am Groot over and over and over again in all of those languages and I mean I know it's just one line but like it's really interesting to me to see if like he was really able to get across the inflection and and everything you know with every with every you know translation of that one line I thought that was really kind of interesting so He did his work for this movie, like, I don't know, 12 times.
2: Yeah. I I think it was actually like 17, if I remember correctly. Yeah.
0: It's pretty crazy. That's fantastic. uh, I thought I was pretty impressed with that. I was like, go Vin. That's awesome. Vin Diesel is Um, really
1: committed to nerd shit. Like, if you didn't know... He made a whole movie about his D and D character. Like,
0: I love yeah. it. Yeah,
1: I, he is. He is here for it. Hey, Vin, you yeah. want to be Groot? I want to be Groot in seventeen languages. Buckle up.
0: <laughs> See, and he doesn't have to roll a twenty to kick your ass, but he can. So. <laughs> All right. So as Joshua pointed out in the comics, Drax is green, but they changed his color in the movie to make him look a little less like the Hulk and so he wouldn't steal Gamora's green thunder cuz she was she's the green person that we have in the in the group and that's it. Um so <laughs> that is my little interesting bit of trivia for the production. And uh, let's go ahead and get started on discussing the movie. So um, I have a bunch of notes here. But if you guys want to jump in on anything you want to talk about, we can absolutely do that. Uh, The first thing for me, and this is always the problem that I come up against. um, Everybody out there who's been dealing with me for any period of time knows that I hate prologues, right? Generally, I hate prologues because it's always about the story that came before. Um, I also specifically don't like the prologue in this movie because while it gives us Peter's vulnerability, which is something that we are desperately lacking in him otherwise. And I think that seriously, the dead mother thing, functionally, narratively, its only function is to give Peter vulnerability. It's not it doesn't really have a strong effect on the narrative, aside from the fact that she gave him the Walkman that he listens to. But that also doesn't have a huge you know, effect on the narrative, because this movie isn't about somebody stole his Walkman and he's getting it back. This movie's about, you know, we're trying to keep an infinity stone out of one of the most dangerous people, you know, in the universe. So... For me, the prologue is always a problem. I always end up, I do this movie every semester with my students, and they're always like, no, we like the prologue because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's just not good. Like, sometimes a prologue, you know, can give you something that you need for the rest of the film, you know. Um, But in this circumstance, I just don't think... That it's good, you know, that it's, it's a good use of our time. It's totally divergent from the rest of the movie. Um, and it touches like this, you know, this deep, you know, childhood tragedy for Peter. But I, I don't know, like it just, it bugs me. I feel like you could hack it off and start with Peter just going into the thing and learn what you need to learn. I mean, about the Walkman as we go. And it would be stronger. And what do you guys think? Everybody always... Def- I always want to hack off the prologue, and everybody always yells at me. So I just want to hear what you guys think.
2: Well, the, the one thing that I think the prologue does do a little mm-hmm. bit, um, and it's not it's not super important. It could totally be done a different way. But I think mm-hmm. the most important contribution of the prologue for me is that uh, when, when his mom reaches out to to hold his hand and he and he won't do it and she wants to share the burden of like her pain and and you know imminent death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when they have the when Peter has the infinity stone at the end, he uh he, he, what he needs is to hold hands with someone to share that pain and and, and to avoid his imminent death. But mm-hmm. of course he can't do it still. And so yeah. he needs a woman in the, in his life to come and initiate handholding because you know he's a man and that's yucky.
0: And do the emotional labor for him exactly. Do the, yeah, right? exactly.
2: Just that uh that metaphor the specific metaphor of holding hands as a way of sharing a burden is like the one thing the prologue does is to set up that yeah. bit in the climax
0: Well, except that we've got this whole movie in which he is arcing from I work alone and I take nobody seriously. And I don't even know the name of this woman I accidentally left, you know, slept with last night and just left in my, um, you know, in my spaceship while I ran and did other things, you know, Um, that he was arcing from solitude to community anyway. And so, like, while I think that that pulls the mother in in a way that um, that gives us kind of like a through line for it. Um, I'm not sure like I don't know the mother has just never worked for me Joshua tell me I'm wrong everybody tells me I'm wrong on this
1: no I hate this prologue
0: (laughs) okay thank you I double hate this
1: prologue because I hate the prologue for all the reasons you said Mm -hmm. but I also hate it because this is an opportunity to show us why Peter does literally anything yeah but he we never get a reason for him to do anything nobody in this script does anything except because the script wants them to yeah. Yeah. And so you have doubly wasted my time with this prologue. Okay.
0: <laughs> because it's a
1: junk Thank prologue you. and it could have yeah. been any reason for Peter to do anything. But it isn't. Right. It isn't.
0: Yeah. And to be oh, honest, yeah. the fact we that...
1: see that he has community of some kind with the Ravagers. So if you're going right. to do any kind of prologue, show us how he is alone in a crowd with the Ravagers for his whole mm-hmm. life. That's yeah. more useful yeah. than this.
0: Right. I'm very and I mean, upset about this movie, Lonnie. I'm, re-
1: I'm, sorry, I'm okay. sorry in advance, eh-holes.
0: No, like honestly, honestly, like I'm. There are a lot of things that I like about this movie. The things that I don't like, you know, um, are, are things that people tend to like, you know, really make arguments for, and I'm like, no, I just don't. I just don't think so, <laughs> you know? yeah, like it's No, just, the prologue. It's junk. not strong enough. Like, yeah. and if you're going to use... A prologue is essentially a bad way to start a movie anyway because what you're doing is you're going back in time and showing us exposition, you know? And, like, that is a waste of my time. I, prologues and fracture teases are, like, two of my least favorite devices, and you see them all the time, and they're overused. And they're overused because people are insecure about their ability to, like, get things across while the narrative is actually moving. And, you know, fine whatever but i think that most of the time you don't need them there are prologues you can absolutely argue for but most of the time i think you don't need them i think this is one of them where you could just hack it off and start with peter you know going in to get the infinity stone and really get this this off to the races which we do because we have our inciting incident right there at the beginning right the inciting incident is the first moment that the protagonist feels the influence of the antagonist upon them and we've got that where he goes and he gets this infinity stone he just wants to make money but then we've got Ronan's um, guys coming in and trying to take it from him and ronan is after it and knows where it is so um so all of that i think is actually a pretty solid start rob what did you think about the start of the movie
2: well the uh the one point that i found the that the prologue was actively destructive to my understanding of the movie yes. uh, mm-hmm. was so the the very beginning we see him in the headphones in the kind of the darkened hallway waiting for you know someone to come out and get him and uh And it's like I said, it's kind of dark. So then his, I guess it's his grandfather comes out and and comes to get him and like Mm -hmm. forcefully takes off the headphones and makes the kid come in. We come into the better lit hospital room and now I could see that he had a black eye. And my first read, because I I didn't watch this movie in a while, my first read was that grandpa had hit him to make him come in and talk to his mother. Oh man. I had to rewind and make sure, oh no, he really does have a black eye. You just can't see it very well because it's dark out there. But Mm -hmm. it was a completely confusing and like, you know, destructive to the story moment because like, what the hell is going on in this family?
0: Right. Yeah. No, it doesn't look good. And yeah. do we get an explanation of that black guy? I don't think we do, do we? Mom comments on fighting? it
2: and says something about you've been fighting with the other kids again, but that yeah. we don't get much more of an explanation than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think it starts out Pretty well. I do like the fact that we get right to the the narrative and the the central conflict, you know, pretty quickly. And of course, I love you know he's listening to the music, he's singing into the like little alien rat things, right. <laughs> you know, uh, singing into them and then kicking them around. It's it's a little bit cruel. It's a little little uh, alien animal. Wait, wait, wait. There, but
1: Are you what? saying that Peter Quill is possibly using other life forms merely for his own entertainment?
0: <laughs> no, no, I would never say that. And when we start talking about all the problematic uh, gender politics in this movie i'm absolutely not going to say that i never would Mm -hmm. um but i think first like if we can just and i and i hope that you guys can agree with me on this ronan the accuser like in this movie worst antagonist ever for a couple of reasons one He's just evil wanting to do evil, right? I mean, that's it. He's just a crazy guy who wants to do bad things and hurt other people just because there's nothing else really going on with him. Uh, The other reason why it's terrible is because they got Lee Pace for this part. And wasting Lee Pace is wrong and offensive if you're going to have lee pace in your movie you better give him something to do because that man is amazing and you give him this shitty flat one layer character to do um it it could have been any terrible actor you could have had a terrible actor that you didn't have to pay to do that and it would have been the same because it's all because it's a terrible character same thing with karen gillen as nebula like there's nothing layered there's nothing for them to do they don't even have good dialogue it's just hi i'm evil i'm gonna try to destroy shit you go about your business you know but that's all i'm here to do you know um and it's just a bad bad antagonist so um so I was really kind of personally offended by that. But what did you guys? Now that I've set this up, so that if anybody likes Ronan, um, obviously <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to backtrack a little bit. Um, but uh, did, what did you guys think of Ronan?
2: Well, his motive is totally informed. We, he apparently mm-hmm. has some kind of you know like historical beef with the Zandar, Z- Zandarians. Z- yeah. so. um, but we did not see any of that. It's just something he talks about in dialogue, which is obviously the least effective way of communicating something in a movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it's he is totally just seems like he's doing evil for evil's sake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, impressive. just
0: pissy because of his dad made a peace. You know, and, uh, and it's of all not the things his he'd dad. Be mad about who made the peace treaty.
1: The Cree collectively. I want to say the Supreme Intelligence, but I don't think the MCU has the guts to give us a Supreme Intelligence.
2: Oh, it'd be great <laughs> if I was the antagonist in Captain Marvel, though. I would love that.
1: It better be. I want to see a giant jellyfish face in a jar telling Brie Larson what's up. That's right, you and then cowards. Brie Larson telling it right back, "What's up?" <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> this did not have to be this way, guys. It didn't have to be this way. Like the Cree hate everybody because they're not Cree, you know? Yeah. And they fight against everybody because they fight people that aren't Cree. And the idea. That the Kree might make a peace treaty with Xandar so that Xandar will stop shooting at them for 10 minutes so they can go shoot the Skrulls instead is easy. Mm-hmm. And it is a thing that Ronan would not put up with because it's mm-hmm. not, you know, pure Creeness. Why are we having a conversation between the Kree leadership and, uh, and Nova Prime when we ought to have the Cree leadership telling Ronan, no, go do what you have to do, but we're going to disavow you. Like, it's politically Mm -hmm. expedient for us to disavow you, so go do what you're going to do. And he would be like, excellent, I hate everything that isn't Cree. I will go kill it all. Because that's what he's doing. (laughs)
0: Right. It didn't have to be this way. (gasps) It's so stupid. It's such a dumb motivation. Like, I'm pissed off that there was a peace treaty.
1: Okay, it is a dumb motivation unless you know about the Cree. Like if you set up the fact that they are xenophobic jerks who will murder anyone who isn't cree, then right. the idea that a political compromise so that they can go murder a different planet not sitting right with Ronan sets them up as dicks and him up as the super dick. Like that's good. Yeah. But we don't get any of that.
0: Yeah. I don't think I don't think we do get enough of a sense that he's just like he's just bad guy you know, living on, a, and of course, anybody living on a black rock in the middle of space is obviously going to be evil, right? Because that's what that does. <laughs> okay, that said, that is, his ship is, is
1: baller as hell, though.
0: Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> I grant you that. that is a it good is a cool villain ship. ride. Yes. It is a good villain ride. It is really good. But um, but yeah, Ronan's pretty terrible.
1: <laughs> and it, yeah. Now, I do feel like we get a little bit more nuance for Nebula than. We do yeah. for Ronan, like we can tell that her dog in this fight is that she hates her sister, Gamora. Right, but mm-hmm. but even then, why? Which which I feel like ties into the whole why does Gamora do anything that she does in this movie problem that I yeah. have, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I do feel like we get another layer to Nebula, but that's you know zero layers and one layer. It's not great. Yeah, the bar is not high. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's not good, I think we did a good job with Yandu though. I mean Yandu is is you know a, like a minor antagonist here, but I actually really liked him, and I thought that Michael Rooker did a great job with the character. Uh, what did you think of Yandu, Rob? Uh,
2: Yandu is fun, um, mm-hmm. yeah then, and it's fun to see like his his big scene towards the end when he like whistles you know, all those guys to death is fun <laughs> and cool. Um, yeah. yeah, and yeah, <clears throat> he's just generally pleasantly awful, I
1: guess.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) what'd you think josh
1: i think it's way too obvious that they are gonna do really cool stuff with yondu in the next movie Mm -hmm. like i don't hate them but i sort of feel like every time they're running from yondu or messing around with yondu we should be running in terror from ronin right you know Mm -hmm. which to, to go back to your The inciting incident. It is good that it happens early, but I don't understand why it's not Ronan striding across that planet, kicking all the ass, and Peter realizing he needs to run because he's overmatched. You know? Why? It's only these other guys so that we can be funny.
0: Exactly. Right. Can you hear my mm-hmm.
1: quotation marks? Yes,
0: I can hear that. I think that tonally, uh, for the I don't mind that it's not Ronan because I think that saving that for an escalation sure. is is probably narratively like a good choice. But having some sense of Ronan's like real actual threat, yeah. at that point, maybe those might guys not should have been been yeah. maybe they should have been. Maybe they should have been yeah, Start tying us Ronan? to
1: him visually, if nothing else. You know. Yeah.
0: yeah yeah I don't know I mean it's a little it's a little weird and I think that Yandu. I think you're right Yandu is kind of like you know the dessert in the cart that they're like <laughs> they show you and they're like you can have this but not now you gotta have that later yeah Um. you know because it's like you know that the stuff with Yandu is going to be cool I love at the end when he's got the the little whistly you know arrow yeah. thing that goes flying through the air like Yandu's really cool and then at the end he has Peter fakes him out with the fake little you know holder thing and it opens up and it's a little you know troll inside and he right. laughs and and I like that stuff. I mean, I like the stuff that you know. He picked up this kid and has been threatening to eat him every day. You know, (laughs) yeah. um, We should have seen that. I think he has character. He has actual character. He's actually interesting, and he's more of a parent to Peter. Then, you know, either of his actual parents, which have this, you know, real weight placed on them. And yet Yandu, you know, is sort of presented as as a less complicated relationship than it probably should be, because I think it is kind of interesting. I think that, you know, growing up with somebody like Yandu may be the reason why Peter Quill went out on his own and was like, Nah, I work alone. Aside from the fact that that's what we always do with, you know, male heroes right. is nah, I work alone until there's a pretty girl. And then right. there you go. Um, I don't want to shock anyways, you, but daddy issues are yeah. shit. Daddy issues are shit. I'm tired <laughs> of them. I don't mind daddy issues, like, in the... But they're so overused at this point that I'm just a little bit tired of it. But I would go with Yondu. Yandu's interesting as a father figure, I think. And I think there could have been some really interesting stuff going on there. Um, yeah, he really is, like, stick
1: that. with a personality.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I'm here exactly. for that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it could be good. But moving on from that, um, so I made the joke at the beginning of this episode that all space movies are the same, and I know that they're not. But Rob, I am kind of interested to see like your thoughts on this as a as a space movie. You know, you come from that that mm-hmm. you know really deep Star Wars background. Um, were you disappointed in Guardians as a as a space movie? Do you see a relationship? I mean, I'm of course you know basically comparing them because of space. That is the only right. thing they have in common but uh, but what do you see there like is there are, are there any like you know kind of lineages that go from star wars to guardians of the galaxy
2: well absolutely uh so okay. the the first thing is that um so i I always think of you know the the two most popular science fiction franchises are Star trek and star wars right at least historically uh-huh. um and I always think of them as sort of opposite ends of the pole where star star trek is more pure science fiction that we we care about how the science works it's relatively new into the era of space travel um because Mm -hmm. that's as far as we're willing to imagine where we kind of believe in our predictions still you know you can go Mm -hmm. a billion years in the future and who you know it could be literally anything so we'll stick with something we could kind of more reasonably predict whereas star wars um you know is so far away and apparently long ago that (laughs) anything is possible and it's we don't care about the science we we have the robots walking around we don't care how they work we have our laser swords and our um you know, or sound in space and all sorts of things that don't actually make any kind of sense. It's really it's fantasy with with the serial numbers filed off and replaced with space stuff.
0: Right, and just because it takes place in space doesn't mean that it's a sci-fi story, right? You know, because it's really about um, where the the payoff comes from. Does it come from kind of an emotional, metaphorical place, mm-hmm. um, which will give you a lot in fantasy, or does it come from this this more kind of intellectual experience of the what if, what if you know we were able to do this, and you know, and it comes. I think sci-fi kind of comes from a more like like you said, the scientific background, right? So I've yeah. always thought of Star Wars as fantasy mm-hmm. and that, would you agree with that
1: absolutely i agree with that okay mm-hmm. i mean i think uh i think i'll steal a line from penny arcade the comic that yeah. Uh, yeah. that describes mm-hmm. it as space wizards in the future past yes which <laughs> means it's not a science fiction story like none of no. that makes right. sense as a science fiction story you know
2: but
0: as a as a metaphorical emotional story absolutely yeah. i yeah. think right yeah totally
2: mm-hmm. and guardians uh has, has that same kind of thing it doesn't care how its science works it's telling mostly an emotional story about finding community as you said and uh, cosmetically, um, it owes more to the Star Wars you know, sort of lived-in, kind of dirty galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. To than then Star Trek has very sort of clean lines and you know smooth smooth angles. And also yes,
0: because in the future science eliminates dirt.
2: Right. <laughs> and the other thing that it has in common with Star Wars is that it is just cosmopolitan as fuck. So you go, okay. you go to Xandar, and I don't know what the native Xandarians look like. I guess they're probably the Nova the Novacore people, but. We you know we have that scene of rocket looking around on Xandar and like no two people seem to be of the same species yeah mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so that that feels much more like a star wars cantina than it does you know there's very few
1: yeah.
2: uh, uh, star trek locations where people are that mixed
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and i think that's again not to beat the drum but that's a place they were doing something with ronin and then just didn't do it like i'm convinced that there is the first draft of the script that is so different from this one Where a lot of this stuff makes sense. Like the only reason for Xandar to be that cosmopolitan is to piss Ronan off.
0: Right. Right. Because it represents everything he hates. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And and we get
0: we just don't get that.
1: You know. Mm -hmm. So yeah.
0: Like peaceful coexisting of people who are different. Like we don't do
1: that, we're
2: creepy. What
0: a thing to hate. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh, and the the last point of similarity between Guardians and Star Wars that I noticed was just that there's apparently magic. Like you know, uh-huh. Obviously Star Wars has the force, and like Yondu has a magic whistling arrow, and there's these infinity stones of sort of indeterminate power origin. Yes. You know, it it mm-hmm. feels very sort of magic as opposed to anything we're gonna like talk about the deflector dish and dilithium crystals about.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. All right. Well that's cool. So I'm glad that there's, you know, some kind of connection there. So I'm not as much of a jerk for making jokes about all space <laughs> movies being the same.
1: <laughs> you mentioned that this this space is really goofy, yeah. right? And that apparently the MCU is just going to ratify that goofiness going forward. Yeah, uh huh. The tone you set with your first movie matters a lot. Like, sure, the fact that Iron Man is our first movie means that we have to spend some time in First Avenger and Thor unwriting some stuff that Iron Man set as a tone. You oh, know, uh-huh. yeah. Um, yeah. And apparently they've just decided to make space goofy because the 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 Guardians was really successful. I don't think it had to be that way. I think it could have been that when the Guardians are there, shit is goofy because they're yeah. the Guardians, you know. But I kind of enjoyed
2: that once we get Ragnarok got out in space, that it, it, it was consistent. That made yes. sense. to no, me. No, I yeah. agree.
1: I agree. But I think that that's a choice and it didn't have to be that way, you know, right. Um, I think that that this corner of space being particularly goofy could have been really tied to the Guardians, and it could have been really interesting in that way. Like, every Mm. time they show up, they're just like the Keystone Cops of the galaxy. You know, (laughs) it's a Three Stooges routine every time they're pulling a heist kind of thing. Right. So –
0: Alright, so um, the music, right? The music, I think, is is part of what makes this movie so iconic. We take all of these songs from the 70s, you know, which are um, very important to uh, to Meredith Quill, to Peter's mother, and then, of course, passed down to Peter, and that's all he brings from, you know, from his, his childhood into his life, and it obviously means a lot to him. And I got to say, that tape, as somebody who, you know, had a lot of cassette tapes when <laughs> Was junker, sure has lasted a long time. Yeah. <laughs> those things wear out; they get you know pulled out and unspooled, and it just ends up being a mess. Um, yes, the
1: most unbelievable part of this space opera film is that the Walkman and tape have lasted that long.
0: <laughs> it is for me, but that's no, I'm, I'm with you. I had what one it's of like those. to actually have a Walkman, to write. <laughs>
1: I listened to he's the DJ I'm the rapper until parts of it didn't work anymore and I had to buy a new one. I mean, come on.
0: I know. <laughs> you wear them out and you buy a new one. Yeah. But um but anyway, the music itself I actually thought was um was really really good. So what did you guys think about the music as far as kind of setting the tone for this movie?
2: Uh I I adored it. Uh mm-hmm. and th- okay, so it, its main job was obviously to set a tone, and I think it did a, a mm-hmm. fine job of that. Um, there were a couple points when maybe maybe it didn't be quite such an obvious cue, Steely Dan's Escape during a jailbreak, I'm Looking at You. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the there were a couple of songs that felt really meaningful to me. The, I'm Not In Love at the very beginning of the prologue, uh, when mm-hmm. which Peter is using rather than processing his grief, so it's sort of a denial mm-hmm. of what's going on there. Um, mm-hmm. And then... At the climax, he's got, you know, ooh, child, um, said so he's singing to Ronan, Ronin. And what I really like about that is that, uh, so first of all, it's a fairly trivial observation that the music is is uh, supposed to symbolize his mother, and that, you know, mm-hmm. clearly. But so at the beginning, um, after the prologue, when he's exploring the thing, he's sitting there lip syncing to the, the song I can't think of the name of right now. Um, so he is pretending to sing. He is pretending mm-hmm. to have the adult role. At the end of the yeah. movie, at the climax, he is singing to Ronan because he is actually the adult now. And you know yeah. he was, he's even addressing a child in the song. Ooh, child. And it's this mm-hmm. optimistic things are going to be OK. It, it, feel, it really feels like a symbolization that, yes, he has finally sort of gotten through his mother's death and is willing to step into the adult space now.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. I like that. Wow. See, this is why I love what you do with uh, Metaphors Be With You. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Like, here I am talking about all this, like, you know, surface level stuff, and you bring it into this very deep, you know, connection. So, I like that, Rob. Thank you. (laughs) Well done. Thanks.
2: (laughs)
1: Josh, did you have something to say about the movies? I love the music in this movie, Mm -hmm. and yet, as so much does in Guardians of the Galaxy, it also upsets me. (laughs) (laughs) Because the music is so good and is telling this really, like, heavy emotional story on its own. And it's a heavy emotional story that no one else in the damn script seems interested in telling, except for about Rocket and Groot. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, we get the most pathos in this movie from The Raccoon. (laughs) <laughs> and then again, later from the tree, when we should be yes. dealing, you know, with this guy's grief yeah. and with Gamora's like remorse over all these awful things she did on Thanos's behalf. But we get none of that yeah. instead. Yeah. Anyway, so I love it. It's great. And clearly it made an influence for better or for worse. I'm looking at you, Suicide Squad. But, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just it. the more I think about it, the more it bugs me because it's like you guys clearly understand how emotions work in a script. Right. Why didn't you write any? I'm yeah
0: well especially in like our more major characters because yeah. you're, you're right like the big emotional moment is between you know is with Rocket and Groot and that is a really touching um, like just a lovely moment you know with them and then of course we get baby Groot because we don't want to you know actually follow through on any kind of like death consequence with Groot because that's just a little bit much <laughs> to be fair um, that's a, yeah. that is that
1: is well established comic book nonsense for Groot no so I, think it's, what it's I worth, think it's fine
0: you know. I don't want to lose Groot I don't want to have <laughs> Have a Joss Whedon moment in this movie. I don't want to like, you know, lose like my favorite character. Um, but yeah, but here we have Peter Quill who doesn't do any of the emotional heavy lifting in this movie. Um, and Gamora, like with both of them, they do have real things going on. Yeah. And Gamora, especially, I think you could have seen so much more going on with her you know, because she has a really tragic history. I mean, she was taken as a child and raised by this guy and her quote unquote sister, who was also a slave, you know, a child taken by this guy um, and doing evil and learning to fight and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that could be really powerful. Um, And yet we we just like graze over it Um, and then tell a really touching story with with Groot. But I mean, Here we have, you know, Gomorrah fighting Nebula, right? No sense of love between these, you know, quote unquote sisters, right? Who were, you know, raised in that same environment and have that trauma in common. Um, And when they're fighting, I don't really feel... You know, any sense of, like, emotional connection or anything. But then when we get to Groot and Rocket, that stuff is absolutely hit, you know, at, like, on the on the head of the nail. So, um, yeah. No, it was... Uh, it, it, it's... There's so much potential. And I think that's part of why Guardians can be really frustrating. Because there really is potential to tell, like, a much deeper story. I mean, look at Drax, for crying out loud. Yeah. Must right? we... Yeah, I suppose. I mean, Drax is another like really flatly written character, um, you know, completely motivated by the fridging of his wife and daughter, um, which is something I'm going to segue into in a minute with the uh, with the gender politics in this movie, which are really uh, a problem. Um, But I mean, Drax is basically a, a kind of a comedy mule, like which is a character that exists only to, you know, give you the jokes, but he's not really funny. Yeah. So
2: what's fascinating to me is that they clearly they knew they had an uphill job trying to make uh, trying to make us care about the raccoon on the tree. So they worked really hard on making sure we had like (laughs) solid emotional notes with them. And they just assumed that we would care about the humans automatically or the human looking ones, I should say.
0: Well, and everybody's human coded. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, pretty much like whether or not they're human, they're all human coded. They're all just different kinds of, of humans, different kinds of backgrounds. Yeah. But I mean, basically, they've all got the emotional, you know, arc or, you know, ideally the emotional arc for humans. We have one actual human, which is Peter, and he has the least human, I think, sense to him. You know, like we we get his vulnerability through an informed prologue, which tells us we see him when he's chasing down the Walkman and how important the Walkman is to him that he's going to risk everything, including his life and the lives of the people he's with um, because of that Walkman. Like, I think that that's a really powerful moment, but we fail to really land it with him. You know, mm-hmm. and um, so we, there's a lot of stuff with Peter that we just keep refusing. We inform his vulnerability, but we fuse, refuse to actually access it. And that's where I think he becomes a problem as a character, especially as our lead character. I mean, yeah. if anybody should have vulnerability, you know, in order for us to connect with them as your protagonist, and we kind of lack it. But one of the things that happens a lot, when a protagonist is lacking in something that is required of a protagonist, and we have this group team protagonist kind of coming in, we'll find other characters sort of patching it up with duct tape, you know? And I think that that's what... um what Rocket and Groot do. Yeah. And Rocket also has, like, he's, you know, he gets treated terribly. He's the only one of his kind. He's, you know, um, experimented on. Um, he is, he feels so alone. And you get all of that vulnerability through his anger, you know, yeah. and through his aggression. You see all of that with Rocket all the way through. I mean, even before we get to the stuff with Groot there at the end, you know, um, we see a lot of that with him and we can access Rocket you know but Drax even though we're we're informed constantly about Thanos killed his wife and daughter and we know that and he's you know but um but he's just a big dumb lug and we really don't access his true vulnerability he's just you know this is his reasoning of why he wants to kill Thanos um but there's really nothing else there with him right no
1: I'm going to give one, this is not my story, this is a story that I read on the internet, but I'm going to say that mm-hmm. this is one redeeming factor for Drax, possibly mm-hmm. the redeeming factor okay. for Drax. <laughs> and it isn't my story, but I really had a lot of reaction to it because I have a child who is on the spectrum, who has autism mm-hmm. spectrum disorder. And the story that I read was about you know an older brother who took his younger brother, who's ASD, to see...
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Guardians of the Galaxy. And that kid mm-hmm. loved Drax because Drax oh. didn't get the joke. Drax mm-hmm. does not emotionally connect with people. And so this mm-hmm. this child with autism said, oh, he's just like me and had oh. that real moment with Drax. Mm-hmm. Now, I love that. I absolutely love mm-hmm. that. It hits very close to home. But also, it's an accident. Like, they didn't do that on purpose. That wasn't – James Gunn did not sit down and decide to do uh, with purpose and a forethought ASD representation via Drax. No. Um, Right. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just going to say that's one redeeming factor, but it's also completely – it doesn't really redeem him a whole lot (laughs) because
0: it's Mm -hmm.
1: on the way to what he's actually doing, which isn't great. Yeah.
0: Right, right. He just tripped and fell into meaning. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but it didn't actually. Oh my god! The Guardians of the mean.
1: Galaxy story. I just tripped and fell into meaning. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: All right. So I'm going to take a moment to go off on the gender politics in this movie, because, of course, all of this stuff, all the girl stuff makes me insane. Um, So we open up. Right. We have Peter Quill. He's, you know, singing and dancing and stealing an affinity stone and then getting into trouble and finding his way out. And he's got all this stuff. He gets back to his ship and has apparently completely forgotten the girl that he left there. He doesn't know her name. This is a joke. You know, she's treated as dumb, and she deserves it. And that is our introduction to women outside of the prologue with the mom, you know, who, of course, dies because she's a woman. I don't know.
1: Well, parents always die. It's a superhero story. but you uh, Yeah, know. that's
0: fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. But all of the women, with the exception of Nova Prime, are defined by their relationship with men. We have Gamora and Nebula who are slaves to Thanos. We have Quill's mom who, you know, dies, but she is Quill's mom. She doesn't have her own identity aside from that. We have Drax's wife and daughter who are fridged. You know, and for those of you, I think if you're listening to this and you don't know what fridging is, I'm surprised, but hey, if you don't, um, it's when women are killed in a story just simply for no other purpose than to motivate the man. That's all. They they exist just so that they can be killed to motivate the man. We We have the slave karina who is also again we have a a lot of our women here are slaves uh she's the one who grabs the orb you know and then of course sets it all off and and blows up nowhere um we have uh, the only woman who is actually not defined by men is nova prime right but who takes all of her counsel from Mm -hmm. men and just does what they tell him, right? And is dismissed by men, you know, like the Cree who wouldn't denounce Ronan. Um, and in the end, is rescued by men. Um, also, and maybe you can explain this to me, Joshua, but Nova Prime isn't even her name. It's her job, right? So she doesn't even have a name? Is How does that work?
1: Yeah, that's her title. I, it's more like her rank, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, as far as the six one six is concerned, and I think we get shades of this in this movie that refuses to explain anything. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ranks like a, you have a corman, a centurion, a denarian, and then maybe prime. I forget because it's mm-hmm. been a minute since I had to care. They did sure. they did destroy the <laughs> the Nova Corps right. in the story that gave us this this set of guardians, but um, mm-hmm. and so Nova Prime is the top of that heap. She's the boss. Um or he or it or whatever it is, yeah.
0: So whoever is Nova Prime has no personal identity, they're just Nova Prime? No, I mean we don't
1: really it's deal with addressing an admiral name. as admiral, right? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Like in terms of their relationship to the rest of the Nova Corps, yeah, they're just Nova Prime, as Rob says, in much the way that, you know, I'm not gonna ask an admiral how his wife's doing. You know.
0: No, but they have a name. You know, yeah. it's not Colonel, it's Colonel Sanders, right? You know what I'm saying? So, like,
2: in the military hierarchy the of guy, chicken, yeah. Yeah.
0: The guy on the chicken bucket has a frickin' identity, but Nova Prime, played by Glenn Freaking Close, does not. And also, she apparently takes advice from beat cops because John C. McGinley gets to come in there and tell her what to do. Just because, I mean, it's all, she's all men, all the decisions are made by men. The fact that she's in charge of it, you would have no idea. Because she doesn't make any choices at all, and she is dismissed by all the men. And this is something that was written that way, yeah. you know? No, I, yeah, that's um, definitely I,
1: – I think in this piece, the fact that she doesn't have a personal name winds up taking on a life of its own mm-hmm. because, you know, she's not important, you know, at all. Um,
0: of course she's not. I mean, she's not for girl. the narrative,
1: right? Yeah. Um, I right. really want no, her I to mean, be a mentor so. figure to somebody, which, again, is why I say there's definitely an earlier version of this script where an Earth kid becomes a Nova
3: right. and yeah. mm-hmm. she's
1: something of a mentor to him. And then he gets caught up with these ne'er-do-wells. And so he, yeah. Richard would be the theoretical Nova that came back and was like, I've been hanging out with them and they're not actually awful. You Mm -hmm. you know, don't shoot them out of the sky. I think they're on the level this time. So we had some actual weight to that with a main character. But no, it's just John C. McGinley doing John C. McGinley stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, which is great. I mean, I like him and everything. Sure. it's just like, even we have one woman who is not defined by men, but she takes all of her... She takes none of her actions on her own. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't, like, express an opinion. She just has men tell her what to do, and she does it, including a beat cop. Yeah, it's Including gross. the guy who was out arresting these people. So all of it, I find highly highly offensive then we of course have our lovely joke from uh, Drax when he talks about Gamora and constantly calls her you know like a whore and and you know as every possible way to demean her he does and it's supposed to be really really funny you know Um, so I find that like really offensive um, because the only one who takes a- aff- exception to it is Gamora and nobody else is like, Hey, don't talk to her like that. Yeah. You know, like that's not okay. Um, and then you know we get to the point with uh, where Drax says to Peter about Gamora, "Are you not the man this one tried to kill?" And he goes, "Well, she's hardly the first one to try to do that to me." And it's supposed to be so funny that Peter Quill treats women so poorly that he inspires them to murderous rage on the regular, you know. Um, so all of this stuff put together is so disturbing because our our female representation in this movie is always about being owned or controlled by men and we don't question that reality at all yeah
2: it's so thorough it feels it feels intentional it might be terrible i'm not sure that it is yeah
0: i'm not sure that it is i feel like it's just that's the, the you know and the thing is the original you know version of the script was written by Nicole Perlman mm-hmm. you know um, who is a woman and then it was taken by James Gunn and James Gunn said he ripped it all apart and there's not much of her stuff left at all and given that James Gunn also thinks that a dead person who <laughs> leaves the story at the beginning <laughs> of the show in the past not even in the current narrative is the antagonist um, yeah okay so I, I would lay this at James Gunn but also like you know I think there's a bit of terroir in there in that, um, in that you know what's in the soil gets in the grapes gets in the wine that that this was a story that was written predominantly by men by from a male-centered point of view Um, but the idea that women are objectified to this degree and owned to this degree and even women who aren't technically slaves are still Um, unable to have any personal agency, you know, um, I find it like really disturbing, um, especially in a movie that came out in like 2014, like, you know, that kind of, of blindness to, um, to even having any characterization for the women and to putting them all in positions of, of ownership and, and under the control of men. Um, It's, it's a bit, it's a bit overwhelming.
1: And I and much like a lot of my complaints for this movie, it didn't have to be this way, right? No, um, we mm-hmm. could have had a space where Nova Prime is the dynamic, amazing leader that we are sort of, kind of led to believe she is, but we don't spend yeah. any time there. And mm-hmm. as far as like Gamora and Nebula, I mean, we should have seen. So I push back a little bit against slaves; they're more like cult members, okay. you know. I mean, I mean. This is a fine distinction. they were distinction. kept
0: against their will, though, right? Yeah, yeah. as I mean, children, like, and Gamora then raised didn't up. stay there. Yeah, but Gamora wanted to leave, and the only way she could leave was to say that she was going on a mission for Thanos. Right. Like, she had to fake it. It wasn't like she was free to leave.
1: Well, no, I agree, but... But also we're talking about Thanos, who creates cults of personality, both in the 616 and later we'll find out like in the movies. He has people that mm-hmm. follow him. And if he gets a child and raises her to be his weapon, I, that's what I'm saying is that if we positioned both Gamora and mm-hmm. Nebula more as cult members than even slaves, which this is a fine distinction for story purposes, why I'm saying it didn't have to be this way, then Gamora mm-hmm. actually breaks away from a controlling Influence,
0: yeah. If it was just mind and control, that's like in a cult, like that's a little bit more interesting. But I mean, from the way it's presented, yeah. no, we don't you know, know I'm why Nebula. She does I see. I see Nebula much more under the control, like, you know, more into the cult than than Gomorrah, definitely. But Gomorrah obviously hates this guy, doesn't want to be there, but is forced to be there and fight for him and can only get away under, you know, pretending that she's going on a mission for him. That to me, whether, you know, technically it's it sounds like slavery to me. It sounds like if it sounds like captivity. I'm I'm and positioning ownership. it differently
1: yeah. because the narrative mm-hmm. of Gomorrah making like mm-hmm. literally choosing her own agency yeah you know is interesting and if and mm-hmm. i'm not saying that escaping slavery is not that but escaping yeah. like thought slavery you know of the es-
0: escaping mind control yeah or or, or I mean, not yeah. even
1: even if it weren't mind control if it were just like he he psychologically programmed her like a cult leader would, right? He had her yeah, as Yeah, I mean, child. that's
0: what cult is. I mean, it's mind control. It's, you know, you play these games and you get into people's heads. Yeah. Let me tell you mm-hmm.
1: how much I agree with these problems being like a male-centered narrative. Because mm-hmm. the week that we are recording this, the mm-hmm. Netflix original remake of She-Ra dropped. Mm-hmm.
3: And uh-huh. it has
1: a very Gamora-Nebula relationship at its core. Mm-hmm. And it is killing it. Like it is oh, heart wrenching awesome. to watch this split from a from a kind of cultish mentality between um, Adora and Katra. Like it's keeping mm-hmm. it pretty light, and I'm still like, I just want to weep tears for poor Katra, who is the Nebula, like in that oh, in that group. Yeah. And and yeah. it's a mm-hmm. show created by Noel Stevenson, responsible for Lumberjanes and a bunch of other really great woman centered. Mm-hmm storytelling so it's like well mm-hmm. of course it is right yes you know mm-hmm. um so yeah it's just another example of it didn't have to be this way we i don't even hate yeah. this movie it's fun but it's one that is really it suffers the more i look at it yeah
0: Mm-hmm. yeah like the sell yeah, by absolutely. date on
1: guardians is up friends it's over yes
0: yeah. <laughs> all right so rob what do you think
2: well i mean obviously i i saw all the all that problematic uh mm-hmm. stuff you just discussed but w- the thing that struck me uh because i i i had heard of, of of those issues before but what struck me on this latest rewatch was how much in the flip side of the story propping up uh, peter quill a mediocre white man yeah uh-huh. which right. which i'm going right. to call out as a mediocre mm-hmm. white man myself but you know so <laughs> i feel you it's so yeah, obvious you. once you see it <laughs> But so alone on the team, Peter has no powers, no particular skills, just a bu- he, mm-hmm. his powers are having guns and having a ship and right. as Lonnie mentioned earlier, guns are a perfect sign of unearned power, and he has some other mm-hmm. gadgets, but they're you know essentially flashier guns to make the movie more interesting. you know he like this mm-hmm. wacky little magnet thing that sucks up all the all the guys over to it, and that's cool, but it's just another way of he has a thing that that lets him do this as opposed to he mm-hmm. has an ability or skill. And while mm-hmm. Rocket is kind of similar in that he needs weapons in order to be effective, we know for sure that Rocket builds his own stuff and is capable yes. of, like, you know, jiggering his own, right. like, escape craft from the prison. You know, Rocket has abilities that matter. And it right. really comes off that Peter Quill is just this guy who somehow or other got loaded up with, you know, this amazing toy chest of stuff, but he has nothing to recommend him. And the movie keeps going back and forth on whether he's. Okay, so, like, in his initial escape from the, uh, the the minions who are trying to stop him from taking the orb, he shows off some reasonably badass moves, and, he you know, he looks like he's doing sort of a James Bond escape, and then he's this incompetent schlub, like, 60% of the time, and every now and then right. he does something that's really, like, awesome and, and like, skilled-looking, but then he, uh-huh. like, trips over, you know, the floor of his own ship, and, you know, it's... Right. It feels really frustratingly, inac- you know, inconsistent. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and
1: I'll say there's a way to do that. That is that is consistent, because when I when I saw your notes for that, it immediately reminded me of um, sort of an Indiana Jones discovery I made, which is Indy's only about three quarters competent, mm. but mm-hmm. it is consistently three quarters you know like yeah. uh,
0: right uh mm-hmm.
1: he always gets himself in over his head and sometimes he falls backwards into the solution but he was competent enough to get to that space and they they maintain that whereas yeah you're absolutely right like sometimes peter's amazing and sometimes it's like get the fuck out of the way star lord and let somebody who knows what they're doing do it yeah, right. that's a great comparison. Peter is always,
2: it, Peter flat vacillates between being 100% and being 10%. Yes. And Indiana Jones mm-hmm. is like 75, 80 all the time. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Right. (laughs) And the thing is, is that like, you know, having like flaws and not necessarily being great at everything, I think is also, you know, a really compelling way to build a character, especially a hero in this kind of like action based movie, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but it does need to be consistent. We do need to get a sense that there is something that Peter has. And I think that he does, you know, like some of the time he exhibits a certain level of cleverness and capability, but most of the time, like he doesn't, you know, it is just I have I have guns and I have a ship. And the thing with with Rocket is that Rocket builds his stuff Mm -hmm. like, you know, Tony Stark is also a guy that has a lot of weapons and, you know, was, of course, born on on, you know, third base. Right. You know, if not (laughs) home plate. Right. Um, Has all of these privileges and advantages, but he still has capability. Like, you know, he's in a cave with a box of scraps and he builds an Iron Man uniform. So that shows that he is actually bringing that like he's building these things, but he builds built them you know yeah, we have
2: no sense that Peter made any of his things
0: no, no, Rocket. I completely respect, and Rocket also is the the strategist. Like he's the one who gets them out of. Yeah. I think it's the kiln, yeah, right? Yeah. When they're first there, so um, he's the one who comes up with the plan. He's the one who sets everything in motion. You know, um, he's 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 working a system. Like you know, he's he's kind of the um, the trickster of the group. Yeah. You know, he's got a little, almost a little bit of that Loki to him, except that it's more technical than magical. You mm-hmm. know, um, so I, I really like that we've got that in Rocket, and I think it's nicely done. And we. See that he's got skill sets, you know? And Peter, we don't really see anything except that he's charming and he's funny, which are really fun, but not great in a fight necessarily. Like, I don't understand how you survive this long on your own for somebody who doesn't like to work with other people. Um, So yeah, no, it's It's a really interesting kind of flip side to look at what's expected of Gamora and how high her skill level has to be. Mm -hmm. And she's matched with this guy. Yeah, Yeah,
1: it's, it's, no, Gamora deserves better on every level. For sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Gamora's worked hard for her skill set. You know, maybe she wouldn't have chosen it had she had a choice, but she's worked hard for it and she's earned it. And she kicks ass, you know, and she's a tough like, you know, hand combat, you know, character. Um, So she's got a real a real skill set and a real ability to do these things that they need her to do. Um, And Peter is, you know, you're you're failing up. You yeah know, yeah a white guy, right, yeah mm-hmm. and
1: I'll say it didn't have to be this way because if they had again the refrain of guardians for me is it didn't have to be this mm-hmm. way because the thing that Peter could have brought to the table that nobody else could is being a good criminal, mm mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if this is so you know it sort of feels like a heist movie sometimes, and it sort of feels like a uh you know they're outrunning the cops and then they're mm-hmm. prison escaping and if and if he's the one who says. Well, I mean, I could get us out of this prison in 10 minutes if I had an X And Rocket's like, dumbass, I can build an ex, you know? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, that'd make be great. him the professional criminal because that's what ravagers are.
3: Yeah. And yeah. then he threw the on a little bit of different. charm yeah. and patter,
1: and now he's a con man also. And now he has a skill that truly nobody else in the squad sure. has. But no, we didn't yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. We just did part of that.
0: He doesn't use skill set. No. <laughs> He's a white boy. He doesn't need a skill set. His skill set is,
1: has Walkman.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) And a white penis.
2: Yes. (laughs) Hey, Joshua, did you mention
1: something about unearned power and guns in the MCU? We'll put a pin in it, because I do think it works spectacularly well for Peter, but I want to modulate that conversation a little bit for the MCU,
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: mostly because, I mean, it doesn't really matter that Tony Stark built them. His power is still largely having guns.
0: Yeah. Oh, see, I think it matters that he built them.
1: So is Black Widow's? Black
0: Widow has hand-to-hand combat. She can beat the hell out of anybody with a nail file and just, a, you know, a minute. Till the it. end of
1: Avengers, but, right. you know, we yeah. discussed
0: that problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is Sam
1: Falcon's? Wilson. Falcon's ability yeah. is just having
2: guns? Yeah, and I I find him unimpressive because of it, I'm afraid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I, di- <laughs> I discussed when we had First Avenger that I was like, I kind of wish he still talked to birds, even though it makes no damn sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that they, they give him a robot bird. The, yes, that's true. <laughs> but Rhodey's power is also basically having guns. There's mm-hmm. there is a lot of power that basically boils down to has guns in a superhero universe. Also, mm-hmm. um, uh, Scarlet Witch mm-hmm. did not earn her power. No, uh, no, but she knows so, how to so, use
0: it though. Like that's the thing. Like she's I just want to modulate. Like, yeah. I just yeah. want to modulate.
1: Has guns equals unearned power because I don't. I agree with you hundred percent in the source where that comes from. You're speaking in terms of uh, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
0: Yeah, yeah, because guns are specifically used in that context, not that, like not to say that anybody but like in that world whenever we see a gun it represents unearned power you know and so like I completely understand that and I'm not saying that's necessarily that way in every universe and I think that even if you have a skill set with guns like if you can use them well you know because any idiot can pick up a gun you know shoot randomly and then you know completely screw everything up which is what we see happening in Buffy a lot when there are guns something always goes wrong because people aren't using them well and if you can use them. Wow. I mean, I would argue Tony Stark, because he builds this stuff and because he can think on his feet because he's so smart that his, his power is definitely earned. He just happens to use guns as part of that earned power.
1: There's a knob that I'm suggesting we turn up or turn down
0: mm-hmm. depending
1: on the genre maybe sure. or the world mm-hmm. that we're in sure. and and i'll again because apparently this is the only phrase i know this episode it doesn't have to be that way <laughs> right. it just is in the mcu uh, because right. if you flip over to the dc universe where mm-hmm. your most impressive human being is a guy who beats people with guns using boomerangs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right like one of the biggest deals about batman is batman's better than any man with a gun
3: mm-hmm. yeah
1: because that was the because it's guns that you know, put him on the path to being Batman, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, just recognizing that that is 100% true in Buffy and Angel every single time. But mm-hmm. I think we really have to turn the wattage down on that for the MCU. Because uh, yeah. I, I just don't think, all of Agents mm-hmm. of S.H.I.E.L.D., mm-hmm. I just...
2: But on the but on the flip side, Joshua, I, I, I agree as, to, a, to a point. But I think that in order to be a superhero in the superhero genre, basically guns represent the you must be this tall sign. You oh, have fair to be able to deal yeah. with, with a guy with a gun mm-hmm. in order to be a
1: superhero at, at all. So a yes. superhero
2: who relies solely on guns is not very impressive to me.
1: No, I yeah. agree. Yeah, I can agree with that 100%. This is one of the reasons that um, I don't love 85% of what they give Black Widow to do at the end of The, the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, God help us. Even Hawkeye looks more competent than her at the end of The <laughs> Avengers. Yeah. And I don't want to live in a space where Hawkeye looks more competent than a mop. Yeah. You right. know, so <laughs> that was harsher than I anticipated. I don't like. <laughs> okay. To, so, to sum up, like, I just, you, Lonnie, very yes. specifically bring that from a really hard look at Buffy and Angel. And you are, make no mistake, 1000% right. Like, that mm-hmm. is a really great thematic explanation. And I actually appreciate that in Buffy and Angel they leave it as a thematic thing.
0: Yes. about mm-hmm. guns
1: and mm-hmm. never actually make any kind of Textual in the fiction argument, explanation, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I have a couple, but they mm-hmm. never do it. They just You're leave right. it thematic and I appreciate that. But I think we just, you know, need to turn it down a little bit when we come into the MCU cuz it's complicated. That no, said, yeah, it's so. 100% on for Peter Quill who sucks. Like he's the Hawkeye of space. I said it.
3: (laughs) I I like
0: I like Peter though. Like I think first of all, I love Chris Pratt. I mean, obviously, he's incredibly charming. Lonnie,
1: I love you. But if you spoke to Peter Quill in real life for ten seconds, you would punch him in the throat. Okay. That is true. I
0: might. I might. But he's (laughs) but I love Chris Pratt. I think that there's I think that Peter is as a character, he's funny. There are things that I do enjoy about watching him and a lot of it comes from Chris Pratt's performance more than the character the way it's written itself Um, so I'm just gonna say there are things that I enjoy about Peter but Peter is a really big problem and I'm never gonna make another argument I'm never gonna make an argument against that Um, all right you guys so before we finish up and get to our favorite parts is there anything else from Guardians that we want to touch on
2: uh, the one thing I think is uh, is an exception to Peter as mediocre white man, the one the one way he isn't a completely standard issue in white male power fantasy, is the dancing. He dances, and uh, and his love interest does not. And I think that's at least interesting. But that's kind of it mm-hmm. for, for Peter yes. Quill. <laughs> yeah.
1: I actually do have one more thing, and I only want to expound on it because I mentioned it at the top of the show. So I don't want to go without explaining mm-hmm. Source tourism is one of my bigger problems with this movie. And the reason I bring it up, the source material tourism, is because that they don't make much of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What I mean by this is, we go to the kiln because the comics did. Yeah. It doesn't really matter for this movie. We just did it because the comic book did. We go to nowhere because the comics did. Like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. carry the same resonance in this story that it does becoming the headquarters Mm -hmm. of the group in the comic books, you know. And I'm not saying to never do this, (laughs) you know, because, uh, like, we take a lot of time to explain Captain America's shield, but it's given this massive narrative weight. Like, we three beat it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Do that. Um, The opposition to that is sort of Nolan's bat suit. I've got it in a drawer. Who gives a shit? Just put the fucking Dracula drag on, you know? So... If they had actually taken those things and made something of them, you'd never hear me say this. But Mm -hmm. there's just so much wasted potential in this movie. And there's a portion of it that feels like we're checking Guardians of the Galaxy boxes.
0: Right. With no Mm -hmm.
1: real payoff. Sure. So I I don't love source material tourism. If you're going to use it, make it matter.
0: Right. Right. Make it significant. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think the reason it comes up
0: so much in this
2: movie, there's a little bit of it in, in basically all the Marvel movies. Uh but it's so it's so prevalent here because the cast is so big and there's so many ways you can throw a little bit here and there, a, you know, a name yeah. a check or whatever.
0: All right, so let's start with our guest, Rob. What is your favorite part of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One?
2: Okay, this is super petty but mm-hmm. i just adore the little time flashlight thing peter uses at the very beginning when he's exploring that uh, that cave to find the orb mm-hmm. and he seems to be shining it to see like the past of that place yeah. oh, and yeah. that is yeah. like the coolest plot device i can think of and i want a story that's about that device and like how it could be used
0: oh it is really cool and that's something we just kind of skip over joshua is that a is that a source material thing is that what is that idea It's a cool idea. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Not that I recall it being like a specific source material callback. Uh, I think, you know... (laughs) I mean, without beating the drum any further, Peter Quill is bad at everything. Like, how else <laughs> is he going to find that unless he literally has
0: right. a map to the past?
1: You but know, but it's such right. a great
0: idea, and we don't it reference is. that anywhere else. Like, it's it's yeah. not narratively significant. You think if you're going to, it's 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 you know, it's like Chekhov's time flashlight. Like, yeah. if you have this thing in the first act, why is that not significant <laughs> later on? Yeah. Like,
2: that's huge. It totally feels like a thing you could solve a problem with too. Yeah.
1: Uh, like how to get out of a prison, maybe. Perhaps. Well, I mean, he didn't have his yeah. stuff, but I'm just saying.
0: But yeah. still. No, yeah. I
1: want to see space archaeology so bad now.
0: I know, yeah. right? <laughs> Indiana Jones If they Jones had made Peter space. Quill
1: mm-hmm. somewhere between Space Indiana Jones and Space Danny Ocean, I'm here for mm-hmm.
0: it. Oh, mm. yeah. That would have been And fantastic. that flashlight could
1: have bridged that. Yeah. Mm.
0: That absolutely could have done that. All right, Joshua, what's your favorite part?
1: This is real meta because I have a lot of problems with this movie. <laughs> but my favorite part of Guardians is what it does to the larger MCU.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Long-time listeners of this show have heard me repeatedly say that the MCU is not weird enough, and that's <laughs> apparently because I don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so I'm working right. on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But as a whole, the movies, they aren't as weird as they ought to be, Mm -hmm. as weird as they could be. And so whatever else I think about Guardians, it kicked the weirdness factor up a thousand percent. And it happened at a time when across the street, we're getting grim and dour DC. And Mm -hmm. DC Universe should be a technicolor apocalypse every other Tuesday. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So good job, Guardians, for upping the weirdness level. And I think we actually saw things rise to that challenge in different ways. Because Black Panther is way weird, you guys.
0: Yeah, but And awesome.
1: Ragnarok is mm-hmm. way weird, but in a completely different way. And yeah. then, of yeah. course, of course, we have Infinity War, which is just way weird in a completely different way. So my favorite part about Guardians is the changes it makes to the universe at large.
0: Awesome. I like that. I have to say, I think that my favorite part was when they broke out of the kiln. Um, I love when a group comes together and everybody brings their skill sets, and then they're able to make all this stuff happen. And so for me, like, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, as as I've talked about before, like the huge action, extended action set piece Mm -hmm. that just goes on forever and whatever. But the breakout from the kiln, these people who would ordinarily not work together, all coming together, all working together, um you know everybody doing their part playing their role and then pulling it all together like I like that it's the forming of the family and even though I don't think they necessarily like laid that ground very well it was a little clunky throughout this arcing of of Peter from solitude to community um which is an arc that I'm always a fan of but I mean it would be nice if it was done well with some you know personal sense of, of vulnerability aside from this informed you know mother issue that he's got um But I actually really kind of liked that, um, and I thought that that was a lot of fun.
2: I'm sorry can I just can I just hit the Peter Quill is awful shot one more time though? Yes, yeah. Because Peter's contribution, if I recall correctly, is to steal a leg that Rocket doesn't actually need. Yes, and then to endanger the mission by running off to get this Walkman. Yes. So (laughs) the whole the team is coming together and using all their special skills. Peter's special skill
1: is fucking everything up
2: or doing a useless errand for Rocket.
1: (laughs) Okay, friends. I'll take that one step further yes. <laughs> because the way he actually gets the leg is by buying, buying it, it from so the guy. Right. <laughs> when instead, if he were Space Danny Ocean, yes. he would talk a leg off a dude. He would talk <laughs> a leg
0: off a dude. Absolutely. No, you're right. He sucks, but I love them all working together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, Rocket <laughs> Rocket and Groot are the ones who own that escape. I mean, they yeah. really make that happen. They are awesome. So, um, so yeah, but you guys are absolutely right. <laughs> Quill can't even do that. Yeah. He gets sent off on a mission. Basically, Rocket being like, here, why don't you go do this so you stay out of the way and don't mess with the grown-ups who are actually mm-hmm. going to work here.
2: <laughs> yeah, Gamora winds up stealing something that matters. But uh, Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I like that. All right, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so much fun.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Everyone listening, be sure to subscribe to Rob's Star Wars podcast, Metaphors Be With You. It is fantastic. Link will be in the show notes. Rob, tell the people where they can find you.
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at rhyret, H-E-I-R-E-T. And I'm also on the Discord and the um, Chipperish forums and all of our usual Chipperish places.
0: All right. Great. Awesome. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Dine Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. Rob, as we just heard, is our hirot. And the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes.
3: Both
1: Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you, who are Groot and not Space Hawkeye. (laughs) Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation.
0: All right, the link to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of even more Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Until then, we're not going to succumb to your pelvic sorcery. All right, so let's start with our guest, Rob. What is your favorite part of go- Golems in the Galaxy? I don't even know what the fuck.
1: They're really just chasing a ring, really, my precious. The infinity ring. all Golems of the Galaxy,
3: all of them.
0: I swear to God, Rob, I'm usually better at this. I don't know what my deal is. Yeah,
1: um, what, what she's doing is usually my job, actually.
0: Okay. I've heard
1: some of the outtakes, Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> all right, let's start that again. Sorry, Go I killed my it. own joke yeah, about the cree. I'm doing it again. <laughs> Although I will tell you, you are going to be talking a lot about the cree and Agents of Shield.
1: Well, that's a mixed bag. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Outtakes, <laughs> Agents of Shield lovers. Um <clears throat>